Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth, and freedom will be defended. I have highlighted in series two of the Protect and Serve podcast that sadly, policing hasn't always been the perfect journey for those from ethnic backgrounds who have been subjected to abhorrent behaviour at the hands of others around them. There are also stories just as important to tell from those that have been victims to incidents of racism but don't believe that police forces like the Metropolitan Police Service is or was ever, as it has recently been described, as institutionally racist, and who believe that it has evolved and changed over time. These people, like my next guest, aren't in denial. They have just lived different experiences to others. My next guest on the Protect and Serve podcast is a larger-than-life character. He's incredibly fun to be around and will have you laughing at his jokes and quick wit within minutes of being in his company. Retired Metropolitan Police Inspector Chris Donaldson is a proud former police officer. He's proud of what he's achieved and the people he's worked with. And equally, he's proud of the fact that he is also a black man who rose through the ranks in some of the most challenging environments British policing can throw at you. Chris was recently appointed on the Advisory Council of the Public Safety Foundation, a foundation whose mission it is to make the UK the safest place to live, work, and raise a family. Chris sat down with me recently to reflect on his three decades of policing experience and the challenges this brought with it. Some will be surprised by his commentary, some won't be, 
But importantly for Chris, this is his story, his account of his time in UK policing. All this and much more next on Protect and Serve. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. And and again, as I say every week, I just wanted to thank all my followers and the people that reach out and and give me feedback, ask questions that I send over to my guests that they've had, and uh, really just just give me great support in in developing a podcast which allows people to ex, you know explore and share their incredible careers in policing right across London, the UK and beyond because you know we've got some great interviews coming up of of officers in the US but 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 the focal point this morning is uh, with a gentleman that um, spent over 30 years in British policing joining in 1983 um and spending most of his career in well his entire career in operational policing on the ground floor um dealing with the challenges that that presents and it's an absolute honor to welcome chris donaldson to the podcast chris welcome this morning how are you good morning how are you i'm fine thank you ollie it's a pleasure listen it's an yeah no thank you so much for for coming on and, and allowing us to explore your incredible career in policing now let's talk about 1983 uh, is the is is the start date for you to move into policing? But everyone's got a backstory in terms of how that decision came about. What for you? What was it that made you kind of pursue this dream of policing? Well, it, it, it's a strange one, really, because I'd never thought of being a police officer. I'd never considered being a police officer. It was never on my radar. Um, I I don't know. Um, in the end, I was very, I was very uh, receptive to the suggestion by uh, a, a friend of mine from the rugby club, Eaton Manor Rugby Club, a guy named Paul Farrell, who uh, saw saw I was very confused, sixth former, who had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, but what I did know is what I didn't want to do, if you know what I mean. Uh, and that that's yeah, my decision making throughout my whole life. I know what I don't want to do. And I know what I didn't want to do, that was sit in an office. And I wanted to do something that was challenging and exciting and outdoory. Um, I was playing rugby, well, quite regularly for Eton Manor. I was playing, I played football for, um, I got to Chelsea, schoolboy when I was 15. So I was a sportsman, yeah, with lots of athletics. And, uh, and Paul Farrell, who was already a serving police officer at the time, said to me, what are you going to do um, when you leave? I said, I've got a clue. And he said, uh, have you ever thought of being a police officer? And, and it just, I don't think I really took him seriously initially. But then I went back and thought about it. And I looked up the forms and I thought, hold on a minute. This, this, this does tick my boxes. You know, this is a challenging job. You don't know what you're going to do from day to day. It's outside, outdoors. And at the time, a lot of people um, thought it was a, a difficult job. Um, particularly from my background in East London, as, as a, um, you know, from a West Indian background. Uh, and I thought, like a lot of things, um, a lot of people said, don't do it. So I did it, you know, um, which has got me in trouble in the past. But in this particular occasion, it didn't. Um, I pursued the application, didn't think really I'd get through. I got through to um, the interview um, at Paddington Goo, which was a pretty scary thing. Um, and I was interviewed by a guy called um, Superintendent West, Brian Y. Brian with a Y West is what we called him, who turned out to be my first governor when I went on to at Bow Street. But I'd never considered being a police officer. 
at all. And when when a police officer in them days, when you get uh, when you get uh, accepted for the police, the local police sergeant or uh, manager comes around to your house to check to see if you uh, your family and your living conditions are suitable for a police officer. Um, and the local sergeant came and knocked on my door after I'd been accepted. I didn't tell my parents, by the way. Um, and they, uh, he knocked on the door and my dad answered. And uh, he said, um, I'm here for Chris. And he thought, and my dad went mental, thinking that I'd been arrested. Um, oh, dear. When he calmed down, he said, no, he'd been, he's been accepted for the police. So he came in and uh, my mum went from deep Jamaican to uh, posh English. Um, as only Jamaican mothers can, oh, and uh, invited him to the front room where we had all the all the uh, furniture covered in plastic, um, and opened up the cabinet with bone china that we didn't even know had a key, and uh, sat him down, gave him a cup of tea. Um, he had a look round, had a chat with my family, and he was uh, and he ticked the box and he was happy. Can I ask a question in terms of your decision not to tell your parents? And as you, as you just said. You, you, you know, you, you've, you come from a Jamaican family, you're, you're a proud black man. But what, would, what was those, what, was there any sort because when we tell our families and friends that we're joining the police or, we, you know, we're considering it, sometimes that can be met with a little bit of animosity in terms of, well, what does this mean for us? Was there, what was it like for you once you'd broken that news or why did you feel that you couldn't tell your parents or you chose not to? I mean, in hindsight, my parents were supportive, you know, and they would have been supportive, but I didn't want to risk. I've made my mind up. I was pretty stubborn, 18-year-old, 19-year-old, um, and I was an adult. So I've made my mind up. I didn't want to be distracted, um, and I didn't want to be dissuaded. I, I think my mum and dad would have been supportive in the end, but I didn't want to take the risk, yeah? So I didn't tell them. Um, they were, in the end, they were very proud and scared at the same time. But, uh, yeah, I didn't want to be dissuaded. And like a lot of things, once I've made my mind up, I've, I, I, make, I made my mind up. So I didn't need another discussion. I'd spoken to uh, the careers people. I'd spoken to police officers who I knew. And um, that was all I needed to know. If they'd said no, I would have just left home and joined. And so let's talk about that, that start date, 1983, joining the police. You know, I, I, I say... I sound like a bit of a broken record, really, when I repeat this, but it is a very important point that policing is a very complex vocation. There's a lot of legislation, policy and procedure to to to, to learn and, and, and almost regurgitate verbatim. How did you find both the academic and physical side of policing, the training? Oh, my word. Uh, well, <laughs> I hated training school with a vengeance. I just hated being cooped up. I, I hated the, the rote learning. Um... I just hated the rigid, the rigid nature of my life. That's going from a sixth form common room, you know, turning up at midday with my feet up on the table, doing a few hours work and going home. To my, you have to remember, this was my first job ever. I, I'd know, I'd never been in full time employment before this. Oh wow, wow! So I went from sixth form on one day to training school on the Monday, uh, bullying boots, shining my, shining my clothes. I was losing a little bit of discipline because uh, I'd been in the boys' brigade, and and, and I'd been to and I'd attended only boys' schools, so I know I knew that that kind of environment. But I uh, it was a bit of a shock to me, uh, just working life, I suppose. Um, but it was it was into the fire really because we're talking about 
it was in them days in 83, it was like a military um, military training school. You know, they, they, it was all run on that basis, very strict. If you did something wrong, you know, and I did a lot of things wrong. Um, fortunately, my governors um, believed in me and, and saw that I had some kind of ability, um, policing ability, uh, because I, I, I had many breaches of which I was disciplined for while I was at training school, generally for laying in. Um, in but my bed when I should have been on the parade square. <laughs> but was it? Um, but was yeah. It, was it a good training ground to establish that level of discipline that you needed and that you'd seen throughout policing? Oh my God! Yes, it, it made me. It made me. It absolutely made me. I needed it. I needed a kick up the ass. I needed to be slapped out of my youth. Yeah, uh, and and they did it, uh, and I am forever grateful, um, because. Um, without that that instant of discipline, and uh, I'm not saying I, I came from a you know a slovenly back background. It's just that this kind of discipline and work discipline was something I wasn't used to, and I needed it, uh, really needed it. So yeah, I was very grateful in the end, although I hated the process. It's rather rather late to get your teeth pulled out, isn't it? You, you you don't want to do it, but once it's gone, it's great. Can I ask you about your experiences? Going through Hay Hendon Training College, as 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 a black man, did you experience anything that worried you or troubled you, or or did you have good camaraderie and you enjoyed the experience as a whole? I didn't think I didn't feel about my color color at the time. I didn't. I didn't it wasn't an issue for me. It's an issue for lots of other people, but it's never been yeah. an issue for me. You know, I didn't think I didn't weigh. I didn't go into training school thinking well, I'm going to be one of the few black people here. I didn't care. If I was the only black person there, I wouldn't have cared. Yeah, it was. It's just stuff. It's just not something that weighs down on me on a daily basis. It didn't then, and it doesn't now. Um, so no, I just wanted to, you know, the few few hours of enjoyment that you could get. I I um, really enjoyed it. Yeah, and I enjoyed it with lots of different, you know, lots of people. I, I fully engaged myself in the social network of uh, Chinese school. Um, and I didn't feel that burden at all. I didn't feel a weight. I didn't feel I was going as a representative of a community at all. Um, and I never have done. Um, I felt I wanted to do myself proud. Um, and I wanted to do my family proud. That, that was it. Your graduation, it must have been an incredibly proud day. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was good. It was good. My mum... Um, my mum and dad, uh, yeah, turned up and it was, yeah, I don't think, uh, they were very proud. They were very proud and, uh, and and that was that was great for me, although I was very very aware that that was just the start of my journey. You know what I mean? Um, for me, training school was the worst part. Everything else was brilliant. You know, I loved the reality of the street. You know, I love the unpredictableness of the actual job. I didn't like the, I didn't like the, uh, the the environment, the training environment. I wanted to do it. I wanted to do the job, and I was very, I was itching to do it. You know, so uh, yeah, my mum and dad were very proud. So you're posted to Bow Street in Covent Garden. Tell us about your induction into policing your first couple of days what was it like must have been very exciting <laughs> yeah well, yeah in, the, in them days you're taken from the uh, training school on a big green bus to your particular district and it was C district at the time so we had people on the bus who were going to vine street bow street not where i went and um um west end central 
Um, and you went to see your commander on the first day. Uh, and you got a little briefing from him. And we had a guy called Ted Stowe, who was a, who, who was a character. Uh, and even then, I thought, I, I, even then, I thought he was hilarious. We walked into his office and he, he had us reading out um, parts of Roger Kipling's If, uh, on, which was on his wall. Um, he, 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 he went round us and basically took the piss out of us, which I thought was great. Um, he, he, he asked us very uncomfortable questions. Probably I shouldn't really repeat on this podcast, but throughout the whole life, whole experience, I just thought this is great. This is this is a larger than life character. It's hilarious um, and scary at the same time. But he warned us that if we'd stepped out of line and we didn't uphold the uh, the standards of, that was expected of a police officer, that he'd be trampling all over us. And but that's what you expect. So uh, yeah, so we then went, we went there. We had a little briefing, and then we were taken to our, our respective stations. I was taken to Bow Street, um, and uh, we put. Our, I remember putting our um, bags down in the canteen, and then going up to see um, the superintendent, who, who happened to be the same superintendent who interviewed me for my for my um, recruitment uh, into the police. Um, he happened to start at Bow Street more or less the same month as I did. Oh, wow. So he, uh, he, he recognised me and he said, I remember interviewing you, so uh, don't let me down. <laughs> so there's a little bit more pressure. Um, so when we went, returned to our, uh, our kit, to get our kit back in Bow Street, in the canteen, most of it had gone, because obviously the old, old officers thought, oh, this no brand new <laughs> kit, we'll have that. So uh, they nicked most of our kit. Um, so, uh, so then, yeah. So then, uh, yeah. Well, there we were. We were then, um, you know, we were on relief. I was at Bow Street. Um, I don't think I was a, an, a Bow Street runner. I didn't see the significance of it at the time. But I've got. I'm proudly hold my Bow Street r- runner tie. Now, it was in Covent Garden, um, and uh, you know, there was a lot of youngsters, uh, people of my age, who, who I uh, who were just brilliant. I just thought the whole atmosphere of the of the Nick was. A family type atmosphere, and 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 I was given to um, several um, street juice instructors and introduced them on the day, and one of them was Yvonne Fletcher. So now that's an important point to lead into, because you know in pre in a previous episode, I've I've interviewed um, John Murray, who um, has has been a, a huge advocate for justice in Yvonne Fletcher's uh, murder back in the 80s. Could you tell us about working alongside John and, Yvette, and Yvonne and obviously the, build, the the lead up to the day that she was tragically killed whilst performing public order duties? Well, I was, um, like I said, she was one, She was my instructor, um, one of several instructors, but the lead up to the day was, it, she'd, she'd taken a group of uh, um, street Jews instructors. In fact, Street duties officers who I'd been on street duties with, which was about 10 weeks at the time. Um, and we'd left street duties by then and we'd been put onto different teams. But she'd been given a few of them to, to take to a demonstration uh, up uh, outside of Libyan Embassy. I wasn't on that demonstration. Uh, a few of the people I came through training school were, were standing either side of her. Um, and it was a it was a nothing what we call a nothing demonstration on a, you know on a sat on a weekend and it was it was just um, one of those things that you do so many of in, in central London you just you're you're, you're policing 
demonstrations nearly every day. You know, so it was just a, no, there was no reason to believe that there was going to be any, any anything special. And of course, the, the the tragedy unfolded, and she was very unlucky, and, and, and someone leant out of the Libyan embassy and shot her, or shot at the demonstrations, and she was in the way. Suddenly, shots were fired from inside, and WPC Yvonne Fletcher was killed. No one's been convicted of murder. The officials inside the embassy were allowed to leave under diplomatic immunity. Yvonne was killed outside the Libyan embassy in London in April 1984. She and John had been helping police this peaceful anti-Gaddafi protest. But moments later, the protest was disrupted. And obviously that in itself is awful and tragic. Such a young lady, such a brilliant lady, so, someone so committed to policing with her life in front of her. But the fact, the thing that compounded it, obviously, and it's well documented, is that they were escorted out of the building and taken out of the country without ever being charged, um, which we obviously thought was wrong at the time, but um, even even more so now. Just, um, I suppose, on a, on a side note, have you, have you been um, very... What's your feelings been in terms of the the determination of, of John to bring justice to that matter. Obviously, you may have followed it closely, knowing that you had a bit of a close association with both him and Yvonne. You know, his work has been relentless in trying to make sure that people are held accountable. John, John, I mean, I, I did my first, probably my first patrol was with John. And I, I remember he, he was just, uh, he was just one of those police you wanted, policemen you wanted to be like. He was hard as nails. He was shrewd, very, very shrewd, very determined in those, you know, even the, the brief you know the brief the hours that we spent uh, walking the week in the streets i'd probably spend more time with john john than anyone else really but it doesn't surprise me at all it doesn't surprise me he, he he's like a dog with a, with a bone he, he ain't gonna let it go um he was next to her he had to hold her he saw her the life you know from her from her body uh, and he respected her and and he knows that the the murderer was in that building um he won't let it go uh, I don't expect him to let go. He needs support. He needs as much support as possible. And yes, there are things that are going to be written uh, which will enlighten uh, the, the situation. But John ain't never let that go, and I didn't never expected him to. And 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 it's to his credit that he's kept the campaign going all this time. And I'm sure Yvonne's family, and certainly Yvonne, would have been proud of him. Finally, some justice for her friend and colleague who held her in his arms after she fell. This has been a battle lasting 37 years. It's a huge weight off my shoulders. My promise to Yvonne Fletcher as she lay dying to find those responsible for shooting has, has taken a huge step forward after all these years. Surrounded by his supporters, John Murray bought this civil case against a Libyan man said to be a former aide of Colonel Gaddafi. How can I ask about the challenges of, of of processing all that went on during that period as a young constable, then starting to recognise the dangers that did exist in policing? Well, do you know what? It was quite dangerous anyway back then. Um, I just didn't. Uh, my mum did raise concerns. She said, "Well, you know, is, is it is it a job that you want to do?" I said, "Yeah, it's definitely what I do. Even more so now, because you felt like you were part of the family." I, you know, after, before that, I did, and certainly after that, we came together even more. And you felt that you were doing something really important, and there were bad people out there who didn't want you to do that job. And, and some of them, sometimes it ended in murder. And we had to remember, 
back then we had the IRA um, right in the midst of the IRA campaign. And, you know, we, so it was quite, not regular, but you, you expected the danger part of it. And it certainly didn't put me off at all. In fact, it made me more determined to be a police officer. Because uh, it's, it's, I don't know, almost call it a surreal experience to be, after graduating only a few months, to be tending such a sombre a sombre moment or taking part in a, a funeral of a police officer, it must be quite a, a strange experience knowing that somebody... It was that a strange you... experience, yeah. It was, it was a strange experience, but it just made me more determined. It certainly didn't put me off. It made me feel more part, part of the police family. And and I know that most people, the, the outpouring of love for Yvonne from the public at the time just made you, emboldened you, made you more determined to to carry out duties that clearly a lot of people don't want you to carry out. Uh, but the good people, the majority, the silent majority, needed protecting, and you were you were the thin blue line, and I was very proud and very sad at the same time. But when when I came out from that 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 church uh, with all those government ministers and and members of public, um, you know, cheering her coffin, I I was very proud. Yeah, it certainly didn't put me off. You moved to the district support unit. Um, where there was a high level of fitness and discipline and training. Tell us about the district support unit, what that unit was all about, what it was established for, and you know what led you into that transition. Well, again, it's networking, I suppose. Like a lot of things, I was I played a lot of football for the for the Nick, and I was playing a lot of uh, rugby for C District, and 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 those kind of people just went to the DSU and they asked me. My friends asked me, why don't you join the DSU? Um, and, I, and I was kind of asked to join by the sergeant. Uh, it was a natural progression for me because I'd, um, yeah, I've just been out, I'm just outside my probation, I think. I, I joined the DSU. And it was just, it was like a, a crime fighting unit, a mobile crime fighting unit. And you, you, you went off your borough um, to lots of different incidents, and which really appealed to me, uh, stretching myself out there. And you, you trained for two hours a day and you trained hard physically. And we had a we had a sergeant who was obsessed. Um, um, so yeah, it was a natural progression for the people I my 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 group of friends who I played rugby and football with just naturally progressed to either CID or um, the district support unit and at two and a half year service or whatever. I had. Um, yeah, it was an opportunity that I, I couldn't wait to take. Yeah, I'd like to to talk about. Um... October 1985 it's it's a time in policing history in London that we've spoken a lot during the podcast and I'm always interested to understand um, the effects it had on police staff understanding the challenges and the ramifications of losing a, a colleague um, Keith Blakelock in particular and and you you reflect in some texts that you sent me then in October 1985 when you were sat on a carrier monitoring the main channel and you were urging the information room to assign you to a large public order disturbance happening on Tottenham's ground. They put you on standby. You, you made your way nearer anyway. You sat in silence when you heard an awful call for urgent assistance for one of Keith Blakelock's colleagues and you heard the panic and the terror in that officer, officer's voice as he described the horrific injuries that Keith had sustained. PC Keith Blakelock died in rioting on the Broadwater Farm Estate on October the 6th, 1985. 
Riots which had been sparked by the death of Mrs Cynthia Jarrett during a police search of her home in Tottenham. But that is something that, that would send shivers down the spine of, of most people. Talk us through that particular incident and, and, and how it affected you. Well, we were, we were, I was on a DSU, so we, we, like anywhere, like anything, we, we wanted to be where we were needed, yeah? And we, we could hear this bubbling for some time. Um, so we, 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 it was a pretty unorganised, I suppose, assigning people back then. It was like literally like a, no, a number on a, on a whiteboard uh, or a, a magnetic bit clip with a u- uniform, you know, 833 or whatever. So, but we, we were urgently, our sergeant, we were urging our sergeant, come on, get us down, get us down there. We, wanted, we were youngsters, we wanted to get involved. We, want, we wanted to help our colleagues out and they were clearly getting a battering down at Tottenham. Um, so we moved, moved towards it, we tried to get a sign, we weren't a sign, but we moved towards it. Um, we sat in silence and we heard this, uh, I mean, I can still hear it now. Because the, 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 back then, the discipline on radio had to be, was you were quite, um, you were monitored quite a lot and you were told to be, adhere to strict uh, discipline on the radio. But I'd very rarely, I hadn't heard someone that emotional on, on the radio before. Very unusual in them days from a police officer. Um, clearly, he was looking at the injuries as he was describing them, you know. And I remember the guy saying, um, you never say dead on on the radio. But he, he did say those words. And I remember thinking, wow. I, I, we all went silent. We didn't say a word. And it did send shivers down the spine, but all we wanted to do then was charge towards Tottenham uh, and to help our colleagues. That's the only thought I had in my mind. Let's go, let's go, you know. Um, you just feel like one of your brothers, your family ha- has been murdered. That's what you feel. Like, you, you, that's exactly how I felt. I felt my, my I don't, I've never met this guy, Keith. Like, look, but I just felt one of my colleagues is being murdered. I want to help. Do you, once that incident passes, is there a moment of reflection as to what has gone on and the gravity and the seriousness of the situation? And again, you know, it's 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 not long after the loss of Yvonne Fletcher, and you know, it's two officers in two years is is terrifyingly high numbers. It's very rare to see that. Certainly, haven't seen it in British policing for a number of years. Uh, if at all, it was a, it was, a, it was just a different time then. You just, ex- I know you shouldn't expect it, but you just felt it was, it was another one was going to come soon. You know, we also had Jim Morrison, you know, who um, got he was a Bow Street officer, a good friend of mine, um, who we, we we were in pro- we were on probation together, and we 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 uh, went drinking and socialised together. Uh, and he got stabbed to death in Aldwych after chasing a handbag for Detectives in the capital mounted their second hunt for a police killer in a fortnight. The spot where DC Morrison was attacked was tonight marked by a single bunch of flowers. Dozens of theatre-goers have seen him in his shirt sleeves chasing a man along a crowded pavement. As they entered a darkened cul-de-sac, the man turned and stabbed the off-duty officer. An hour earlier, DC Morrison, who was married, had been drinking in a nearby pub. He left wearing a jacket and a coat which are still missing. The murder of DC Morrison comes just two weeks after another policeman was stabbed to death in East London. There have been some 60 knife attacks on police officers in London this year. Back then, 
it seemed more frequent and, and almost, you know, not expected it, but it, it wasn't that surprised in the end, you know. Um, we didn't have body armour, remember, back then. We were very, we had very little protection. Um, but you just felt it was a, you just accepted the dangers, put it that way. I didn't go home. Yeah, obviously after Von Fletcher and, and people I knew got murdered, you, you, you worried about it. But you didn't go home thinking, I'm going to leave the job. I just felt more determined after that, after those incidents. And yes, it was a bad time for policing as far as losing people. There were several people who got murdered back then um, or killed in, in the line of duty, you know. Uh, but yeah, you didn't, I didn't, well, personally, I can only talk for myself. It didn't put me off being a police officer, certainly probably the opposite. The, 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 the DSU, which I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, is probably more known today as the TSG in terms of its, you know, uh, large groups of individuals that are able to respond to isolated incidents or in, incidents of public disorder. Well, or where it, you, Yeah, go on, explain it. Tell us, you know. Is it's it, not quite, it was, it was an amalgamation of the, of the SBG, the Special Peugeot Group, and the DSU. Basically, both needed to be rebranded. The, the, the SBG had got uh, bad publicity or, or, or been under scrutiny because of uh, an incident or a, a, a guy called Blair, Blair Peach who died during a, a demonstration of its day with policing. And the and DSU were disbanded because of an in, one of one of the reasons because of an incident um, in Holloway Road where um, one of the carriers uh, derp got involved in something that uh, turned out to be uh, uh, well the, their actions turned out to be illegal basically. So I I, I um the DSU and the and the SPG were amalgamated into and to, to grow what was called the the TSG you know and they what what they what they wanted was a more professional full-time public order unit because neither the DSU or the SPG really were that well trained in public order DSU more than the SPG they were crime fighters but they needed someone who's they needed a unit that was professional uh, and de in dealing with public order incidents, well-equipped, well-trained in tactics, and also could use crime, crime fighting. So they amalgamated the two, the DSU and the SPG were brought together, probably mainly with the same personnel. Uh, and, with, and some people didn't, they went back to crime fighting or they went to CID and didn't join the new unit of the TSG, which was started in 87. But the, the, so yeah, it's a, a bit of both. The, the important aspect, that I suppose I wanted to raise with regards to the the um, district support unit is the work wasn't always glamorous and and you reflect on a on a job where the IRA had attacked London you were sent to the Carlton Club in St James where a member of the IRA had walked up to the reception and dropped a holdall which contained 15 pounds of Semtex and explosive the explosion caused the ground floor to collapse in the basement. 40% of what used to be the ground floor of the Carlton Club has been blown into the basement. Anti-terrorist squad officers from Scotland Yard have spent several hours searching through the wreckage for clues. They've also been carrying out a meticulous search of the debris strewn all over the street outside. The evidence they've collected has been taken away for scientific analysis. Police believe the bomb was planted an hour before it exploded. The police hope that film from a security video camera above the front door to the club will yield vital clues, 
and they're warning the public to be vigilant. And, and miraculously, only 20 people were injured, but sadly one of those injured at the time, Lord um, Cabri of Adele, died a year later of his injuries. Now, you were used to carry out almost fingertip searching of, of explosive material. You know, that's really hard pressing work. Talk us about that type of the component of the DSU support role. Well, that was the TSG. So uh, we were t- we were taken there. We were like we were. Yeah, we were told that the bomb had gone off. It was they were doing the, they were searching. I think there were quite a few bombs gone off in London or in and around London or up and down the country. And at the time, so special branch at the time were overrun. So they obviously thought, well, we've got a unit who could well just do as they're told, basically. And and we were we we did. We were quite disciplined, very disciplined. We were asked to enter the building. Uh, the first floor had fallen onto the ground floor and basically sift through uh, in, in segments, in organised se- segments, uh, on our knees, basically, and with, with rubber gloves on, sifting through all the rubble uh, to find bits of the component parts of the bomb. We'd, given, we'd been given a very brief, you know, uh, lead-up to that. Uh, and and I do remember thinking, wow, this a bomb's gone off in there, and, and the damage, such a small amount of Semtex, the damage it did was un- incredible. And how I was, I remember thinking, how didn't anyone else die? I know it's obviously very sad that that, that that chap died, but I couldn't believe that more people hadn't died because the wreckage was unbelievable. Um, the special branch officers sat outside in their car. And we, and every now and again, they'd come and direct us. But we, we, yeah, we went through youngsters. I was 22, I think, at the time, walking just on our knees, on our hands. I remember our noses were just full of soot and dirt. And at the end of it, we came out and washed ourselves. We were covered in it, absolutely covered in it. Obviously, health and safety now probably would never have let us do it. But uh, we did it because we needed, we knew it was an important job. Um, and I think one of them, one of our guys actually did find a component part. There are also periods of, of time where, you know, you, when you're working in these departments where it's not all exciting, it's not all go, 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 it's not all public order. There are periods of boredom. How do you get over and get through those periods of boredom in terms of supporting each other and keeping everybody alert and awake and alive to the fact that something could happen at any moment? Um, laughing a lot. Um, we, 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 we got on as a group, main, you know, most of us got on as a group, and even the people who didn't go on, get on really were quite entertaining. But we had a lot of characters. We had lots of characters on our, on our team. Um, <laughs> uh, and we just made each other laugh, really. Um, if we weren't, because there was lots of standing, standing by, you know, in them days. You know, you could be sitting in a car for six, seven hours sometimes, even longer, you know, um, just waiting or on standby for something. Um, so you have to entertain each other. And, and this uh, is this is before the evolution of mobile phones, you know, and social media. Oh, well before. When, when people used to talk, do you remember? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, 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 and laugh. Uh, and there weren't really many boundaries, really. Uh, any, anything went. Uh, and we did take... And the thing is, it was very fair because everyone got a piss take now. So uh, I, 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 I really enjoyed those moments, I must admit. We... we 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 talked about everything. There was a, every, there wasn't part any part of our lives that we didn't share with our colleagues or my friends, is what I call them, at the time. You know, we 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 laughed a lot. We worked hard together, and we played together after. You know, we went we went we played sport together. We were 
went to parties, we went on trips together, off, off duty as well. We were all more or less the same age. And we had people like the Zipper Twins who were obsessed with bodybuilding and everything bodybuilding and reading magazines of bodybuilding. They used to eat, eat strange things. When I say strange <laughs> things, they ate things that weren't kebabs and chips, you know, that kind of stuff, which in them days is very strange behaviour. Um, um, we had... Yeah, we had a mad Scotsman who was a who was a Elvis impersonator. Um, John McGonagall, great, great, great character, fantastic character. Uh, but he'd he'd sing uh, over the PA to uh, Oxford Street Christmas shoppers, and he, he he you more or less thought you were listening to Elvis. He was brilliant for a Scotsman. He was fantastic. Um, and we we just had lots of different characters that coloured the day, you know, and brought different things. You know, Matt, Matty Allwork, who who was made supervisor for the day, was the worst supervisor I've ever worked with, and he never supervised again. Um, it, he we we just we laughed a lot. We liked each other's company, uh, and we were the same age. We trained hard, and we worked hard, and we played hard together. So yeah, it was fantastic. You you describe working um, with a colleague, uh, an Irish girl who uh, had a great sense of humour, and you and you described this incident where you were working together for a period of time and on one particular night we're driving along when you received a call for urgent assistance to a pub fight which i would imagine is for any tsg crew the the ideal scenario to go and resolve public disorder at a, at a pub tell us about that story yeah i, I mean uh, i had um, in them days i'm not sure they have them they do it now but we were buddied up so we had a partner and i had a partner i was on the tsg for four and a half years for three and a half of those years, I, I worked every day with the same person. That was Michelle Steer, uh, a tall Irish lady, um, hard as nails, a great sense of humour. And we got on very well. So we worked every day together. But we went to, um, yeah, we were on a carrier coming from an incident on the other side of London going through Pinner. I think it was Pinner. I think it was the Victory Public House. Someone has told me since it's not Pinner, but it was in that area. It was, a, it was definitely the Victory Public House. And um, we used to monitor, as we'd go through different grounds, we used to change our channel to the ground that we were going past so that we knew what was going on locally, yeah? Uh, and if we needed any, if we could help anyone as we drove past, just drove through the ground. So um, we heard an urgent assistance go up from a unit who were, uh, well, monitoring a pub fight uh, and the pub was getting smashed up, but they were sat outside. There was only two of them. And it, it was very odd in them days. I, I realised that when you work out of districts, you have to work at a different pace and you have to take different precautions, you know, because I was used to working in central London where a pub fight, you just drive, you run in. That's it. You don't sit outside, monitor it, wait for more units. You just run in. Um, so it was quite unusual seeing a police vehicle sat outside. And we said, yeah, we'll come and I'll help you. How many are there? there were, in them days, there was one inspector, three sergeants, and 21 PCs. And I said, oh, yes, please. So we went down there, <laughs> and we went, into the, uh, <laughs> we went into the pub, much to the surprise of the locals, who had never seen this amount of police officers, probably only on telly. And uh, we, uh, we, we arrested several people. But only me and uh, <laughs> I was the only black guy on that unit and she was a very tall um irish lady with long dark hair uh only identifiable people so we copped about 11 complaints we copped every complaint basically that day 
uh, even they, even if it was nothing to do with us. All they could remember is the black guy and the tall um, tall lady with the long dark hair. So we got a lot of complaints <laughs> because we were so identifiable. Um, none of them were ever uh, um, substantiated because they were true. But they, they 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 didn't like the fact that we just turned up and arrested them uh, for something they were doing quite regularly without arrest. So yeah. We, we made um, we made the people of uh, Pinner or wherever it was uh, quite happy that week. When did you decide um, that you needed, um, I say more actions a word, but you needed to be in a more dynamic environment in terms of you know pursuing this this uh, interest in in firearms and and NSO nineteen. Well, I did. I'd again, it was networking. It was people I'd worked with in the TSG. You know, the thing about the TSG is that it's a stepping stone, I thought, at the time, for lots of different people. I worked with a group of people who went off to different departments um, in, the, in after TSG, four and a half years in TSG. They went off to different specialist departments. Some of them never came back. You know, I mean, they went off to specialise. I could have specialised for 25 years if I wanted to. But I'd, I'd make, made a decision when I came off the Territorial Support Group in 91 that I, I had a massive gap in my my experience. So I, I went to Borough. I, I went to Tottenham. I wanted to go to a ground where there was lots of residents and there was different kind of policing. So I went there, got a lot of experience and a lot of um, uh, policing experience and a lot, lot of evidence. Um, I then got promoted and went to Hackney. And so it's still the same people who were encouraging me to join SO19 when I left the TSG uh, were still encouraging me to join SO19. Um, so I, I had a go. Yeah, that, that was basically it. People I knew, networks I worked in, who thought I was uh, going to be a good SO19. I had no love of guns. I'm a, I'm a bloke, so yeah, obviously like shooting guns and driving fast, that's, you know, that's what we, we used to do. We used to want to do when we were young. But um, I, uh, I was encouraged by people who worked there to come have a go. So I did. And that's the, that was my journey into it. I didn't really have a burning desire to hold a gun but I did have a burning desire to be at the front end of policing uh, with people who I liked so yeah that's how I got this podcast is brought to you by the Public Safety Foundation the Public Safety Foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live work and raise a family this crime fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Now, it's back to the episode. The other thing that I, I recognise, which is a consistent theme in throughout your um, career, picking up on some of the key stories that you've sent me, is that I think it's important to note that you have a great level of resilience to often quite challenging and troubling scenes. Like you recall in February 1992, you were working in plain clothes when you were called to an address of a lady that was acting uh, incredibly irrationally, had children in the property and was armed with knives. Now, these are very, very difficult situations to try and overcome, to minimise the fallout and the impact of other people which are involved in it and which couldn't go very bad very quickly. Was that a skill that you'd picked up within yourself, that you had this great resilience to be able to overcome quite challenging and confronting incidents? I, I, I don't know, you know. I think... I don't know. I just I had this burning desire to be somewhere where 
I can make a difference. Do you know what I mean? I always had that burning desire to, to. I just felt responsibility. I just always felt I needed to be there. If something really, really bad's happening, I was kicking off. I need to be there. I need to sort it out because that's what I'm being paid to do. I never really thought. I, I, I expected bad things to happen. I joined the police. You know, I was very, very um, aware and prepared for bad things to happen. Obviously, when bad things do happen, you have to deal with them mentally. That that particular instance with Sarah Dawson in Tottenham, where she held her, um, she'd smashed up her house and her mother was outside and we'd gone down there. I had some really good PCs. I was playing clothes at the time. I was on the Eurocar, car. And um, the, the, the initial shield unit went in and retreated because she'd, she'd had so many knives around her the throat of her kids and at her feet. They thought it'd be dangerous to uh, approach her any nearer. And I just thought, I'm gonna have. I'm gonna do something. It'd probably, I'll probably be disciplined and kicked out of the police now. But I thought we're gonna to have to try something different to close her down, basically. So I felt I'm playing close. I went in there and I pretended I wasn't a member of the police. I, was, I pretended I was a member of the public. And I got into the room with her, and I closed the door and I started talking to her. She was a bit confused, and in, in the time she was confused, I managed to close her down. I grabbed both her wrists and called the unit in. We we disarmed her. Um, yeah, that does that does. Only after, as you think of the danger, you put yourself in. But you're a police officer. That's you know, you are. That's what you, you, you That's what the public pay you for to put yourself in danger so that they don't have to. So I, I went in there. We we disarmed her. Uh, she was taken. The kids were taken off of her, um, and unfortunately, um, when she was released from Broadmoor a few years later, she killed both of those children. The, the, uh, and just going back to um, this 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 incident, you described prizing the knives away from the children's throats. I remember grabbing her wrist and thinking, "I need to now push these these knives away from these kids' throats," and I did. I managed to get my out. I was stronger than her, obviously. She was drooling from the mouth, literally like a dog. Um, and the kids run off, run away from her, into the arms of the officers in uniform. We took her out and we had an almighty fight with her because she was very, very strong, obviously. She was not in her right mind. Um, and we managed to get her away from the knives and restrain her, um, handcuff her, take her, take her away. Yeah, so it was a, it was different, it was difficult, but, and sometimes it, re, it does repeat on me, that incident. Not, not so much the danger I put myself in, but the faces of the kids. Um, yeah. But you're a police officer. You're there to do the job, uh, job. And sometimes that job's pretty nasty. And you have to, and you build res resilience. The more incidents you deal with, you know, the more resilience you build. Do you know what I mean? You become hardened, battle-hardened, basically. And, and, and what is the greatest tragedy in this is... Is, and as you say, it's it's the visions of the children coming to terms with and trying to process the fact that the person that's supposed to provide them with the most care, affection and love is actually turning on them, um, which is quite a challenging thing to process in terms of trying to remove them from that environment, give them a place of safety. And then some time later, she murders them, which is incredibly distressing. It's very distressing. It's uh, and and um, you can't look into someone's mind. And but I can tell you, when I looked into her eyes, um, when I when I disarmed her, I knew that this this woman should never have had them children back. 
Um, and, and, and that's another story, how she got access to her kids again. But, um, and, and lessons are learned, but those kids are still dead, you know? Um, but I know I could sleep, I could sleep well because I did what I could. Let's, I, I want to ask about the training um, to as much detail as you can go into around SO19 and more importantly, the discipline, because, you know, we're talking about the most uh, advanced individuals in terms of tactics and operational awareness um, and capability in dealing with the most serious of incidents across the nation's capital. Um, what was the SO19 training like for you? What did you get out of it more importantly? And and was there ever a time through the training that you questioned the decision of moving into that unit because ultimately the worst case scenario was on any particular shift you may have to end the life of an individual that causes a significant threat to others or are you quite content with that? I trusted my judgment, you know, and, and uh, I trusted the training as well. The training was hard. The selection was really hard. And the people that you were around you were hard. I mean, the first time I went in as a sergeant, because um, obviously I was a sergeant, I went in, uh, I failed and I was gutted, absolutely gutted that I failed. I failed not by much, but I failed. I'd, I'd only had about three and a half years service as a, as a sergeant at the time, so my supervisory skills needed to be honed and... I went away and I owned them. I, I, I listened to what the criticisms were and I came back stronger and I passed. But it was really hard, really hard. And it has to be. You know, your judgment, you, you will never replicate, you know, um, having someone point a gun at you and what you're going to do in a split second. But you can be prepared as much as you can so it can be, you know, your law, your legislations and in, in your weapon and your capability and everything, all your responsibilities. Um, you can be trained and practice and practice and practice um, until it's um, muscle memory in those circumstances. But you know that the people you're working with, if you do get through that training, it has to be hard. It has to be hard. You have to sift out anyone who's not going to be, um, for your for their own good, you shouldn't be putting them in that situation. So they they were pretty ruthless in uh, in doing that. And so by the, by the time you got to the end of it, you, you felt you really achieved something, you know. Um, and the people that, and you knew that the people that came out of that system at the other end were very capable, very capable. And even more so, when you got to your team, even as a sergeant, no matter what rank you are, you were with people who knew a lot more than you did. Uh, it's a very tough challenge for a young sergeant like me. Um, to be in an environment where every one of my team, every PC of my team knew more than me. Um, and they make you know it as well. So uh, you have to find a way to uh, wind your neck in and listen, uh, which is quite hard for some people because they've got a higher rank. But in this environment, you're learning, you're learning, you have to listen and learn, which is what I did. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It didn't put me off. The training didn't put me off and it just made me more determined when you got to the end of it, certainly the second time. Um, yeah, I was really proud of myself that I, and I'm honoured to be part of that unit. Did you did you get the opportunity to work with names such as, you know, Tony Long, who'd had um, obviously yeah. quite a high profile period of career yeah. and, and sort of those chaps that had been around the firearms unit for some years before you'd got there and had some incredible experiences probably to share? Well, Tony Long had been, uh, was, uh, yeah, good, great guy, a legend. He was on the SFO team at the time. I was part of the ARV team, so didn't work with him that uh, directly. 
not not directly, no. But I did work in the same unit as him, and uh, I knew him quite well, and still know him quite well. Very, uh, very, uh, a character. Put it that way. Yeah, he's a, he's a great character. Um, one of the legends of SN19. But yeah, I worked with lots of lots of people who uh, went on to uh, other things, uh, close protection officers for the Queen, and um, lots of different uh, uh, roles because it was a it was a a breeding ground for a lot of very professional officers, very good officers, yeah, and and you would be if you get through that that selection system. We we've spoken about this off air in terms of um, your time in SO19 and and challenging situations. Is there any particular moments in those ARVs, those firearms units, which you recall, which were probably the more intense jobs, where you know things could have potentially um, not ended up as as you as you would have planned to? What any any sort of key moments in that in that period well we had we had, we, had, we had a couple of guys i mean a couple of incidents where there was a there was a time when i we went to hackney um and uh we we got information that a, a guy had shot at his girlfriend in public um shot uh, shot a gun into the ground and run off and he we, they'd identified where he was and we contained it and I remember having a very young inspector stood next to me at the time, and I'm I'm now uh, a duty officer on on uh, SO19, and I'm trying to basically uh, uh, reassure him that this this kind of incident or dig out, as we used to call them, uh, was very common. We did two or three of them in a shift sometimes, you know. So I was trying to say to him, it was like three o'clock in the morning. I say, look, don't worry, we'll just put the door in, we'll challenge him. Uh, we'll arrest him and we'll hand him over to you and that'll be the end of it. We'll ride on our merry way. And he's going, all right, okay. And we were having a nice little chat. And then all of a sudden I heard gunshots in the distance. Um, and then over the radio, one of our boys quite calmly said, he's shooting at us. Um, and I said to the duty officer, well, the duty officer said to me, what are we going to do? I said, well, they're going to tell him to stop shooting, firstly. Um, and then they'll contain him and they'll call him out. All oh, right, okay. Um, and then it carried on a little bit. Um, in the end, I ended up ringing him up. This individual, I, 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 totally against procedure. Don't don't do this at home. Um, I I rang him up on his mobile and told him that there were several heavily armed officers at the door, uh, very well trained. And then if he gets involved in a gunfight with them, you probably lose. He said, "What should I do?" I said, "Well, surrender." there's a guy at the front who will tell you what exactly what to do and do as you told and he did and we came out um anyway we took the arrest and that could have gone very wrong but i had total confidence in the guys on the front of the stick what we call the front of the stick and and in my pcs that they would do the right thing they wouldn't uh they're given them an opportunity to uh safely take the rest which they which they did in the end it turned out to be blank firers and the the gun the actual uh, shells were bouncing down the wooden steps towards the front of the stick, so uh, they were very restrained, and they uh, and it was a good, good, good arrest. Um, we had also had a guy come running out at us down in South London with uh, with lots of jumpers on round his legs, round his stomach. He was fully prepared for a baton round or a taser in them days, or the early early tasers them days. Uh, he wanted to be shot, basically. That's what he wanted. He'd been holding his girlfriend hostage and he'd come running out at the at the stick and he wanted to be shot um in the end the furry exocet got him 
and uh, we uh, managed to take him a safe arrest. But he, his whole whole being was he wanted us to kill him. Uh, and death, death by copy is a common, um, well, it's, it's a well, well written about uh, uh, phenomenon. But we we used restraint. We chatted to him as much as we can. And, and then, and in all of those circumstances, the last resort is using your gun. You don't want to use lethal force at all, only if it's absolutely necessary. So we took every method and every technique in that uh, that particular occasion and we took a safe for the rest. So yeah, that could have gone very bad. There's lots of times it can go bad. Every time you go out and you've got a gun and you take an arrest, it could go bad. You know that. The one, the one question I wanted to ask you was, is that there's a, there's a huge difference between being a PC in an armed response vehicle and following directions from a sergeant and an, an expector at Trojan level who's kind of guiding you through that decision-making process. What is what is the pressure that you're feeling as an inspector on the ARVs knowing that every decision you make is impacting the potential outcome of, of, of any of these high-risk matters? Do you, is that something that you're processing and understand the significance of it? You, do, you, you become numb to it. You, know, you, you, you don't think about it every day because... It's just part of the way you think. You know, you wouldn't be there if you didn't think that. Uh, but uh, it doesn't weigh it. Well, it certainly didn't weigh on me every day. I was very confident in my ability. I was very confident in the policemen, the, the, the officers that I was working with, confident in the kit that we had and confident in the weapons we had. And I was even more confident that there was no scenario that I would in, encounter that I hadn't met before in some way or another. You know, uh, and all the police officers in front of me, but we, we trusted our judgment. We, we, we wanted to be there. We wanted to be those decision makers because we trusted our judgment and our, and our training. So I didn't worry about it every day because I was very confident in what I was doing and my training and the people I was working with. See, because they're, they're, they're just some of the best officers I've ever, ever worked with. You know, very well trained. And you knew that they wouldn't do anything stupid. Um that the the training as an inspector it's not as it's just tactical in them days it was just tactical advice mainly you know the sergeant was the more pivotal role you were there at the bottom of the stick you're there going in the, the houses and doing the doing the diggers i think that's a more crucial or more pivotal role as an inspector certainly back then you just gave tactical advice and the tactical advice is pretty much the same nearly every incident yeah, so much so it's now farmed out to people who have never carried a gun. Um, I don't agree with that, but that's, that's uh, basically simplicity of that role as attack advisor. Um, they're pretty, pretty similar tactic, tactics you're going to give advice on. Mm. It is, we, I've, I've had the, the absolute honour in, in speaking a number of episodes ago to uh, retired Gold Commander Bob Broadhurst, um, who's 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 held in such high regard him and Mick Messenger uh, you know Mick Messenger I think is arguably described as the as the as the old school governors yeah sort of the godfather if I can use that terminology of public order and really set the, the, yes. the gold class standard and is is yeah. so heavily respected and I'm, I'm hoping that I can get him on a future episode to discuss his incredible career in policing but but what I wanted to talk about was was another part of your career where we've spoken from a from a we've we've heard and spoken about from a managerial spec a managerial perspective the challenges in 2011 when um tragically albeit uh, determined to be lawful um the police um shot and killed uh mark duggan in tottenham 
which was an incredibly challenging time, I think, in British policing, not only defined to London, but eventually across the country. You, you were at Tottenham um, at that time, I believe, if I'm right, as an inspector. Can you tell us, from your perspective, what that period in policing looked like for you and some of the challenges and experiences that you went through? Well, up until then, it was pretty quiet. Um, I was an inspector back in Haringey. I volunteered to go back to Haringey because I loved the area. And um, I was I was a level, I volunteered to be a level two inspector, which is, uh, you know, uh, not many, there weren't many level two inspectors on Haringey because basically um, you're, you're salaried and you're doing lots of, lots of hours outside your normal hours. Um, but I liked... I'd got a lot of experience in public order and I, I volunteered to do to be a level two inspector. So I, I knew as soon as the uh, Mark, I knew Mark Dublin uh, as, an, as an individual before, obviously before he got shot, but I knew him from Haringey around Tottenham. And it actually he was quite a bright kid, um, just took the wrong turn, you know. Uh, if he'd have used his brain in, in, for legitimate purposes, I, I would imagine he'd have been quite successful. But he wasn't. He decided to take that line. Anyway, he got shot. Um, SO19 um, did the shooting. And I knew it was going to bubble up. I knew that it's Tottenham. And a black man's been shot by a police officer. I don't know how it would be. Whether you had a legitimate, and they did have a legitimate cause, it's going to be kicked off. It's going to be misconstrued. It's going to be headline news and it's going to be a very difficult period so I braced myself for what was going to happen I didn't for one minute Chris just just to give just just to give us some context around that are you able to give us a bit of an insight as to what led to that that incident what led up to it do you do you have enough information to be able to kind of talk us through it it was a surveillance surveillance job wasn't it and uh, they didn't tell that he'd um, he bought a gun and he was going to do something bad with the gun there's no dispute about that they arrested the guy who who uh, gave him the gun in um, in Leighton. So they were following him, and they took him. They went to take the arrest, and um, uh, which would have been a normal arrest, really. So nineteen would have been called forward in front of the surveillance team to take the arrest. They probably thought where they took the arrest, they were going to take the arrest, was going to be in a safe area with less less collateral damage. So it's, I know that road, and there's not a lot of buildings either side, and a lot of shops. So they thought, right, this is the time to do it, and they did. And Obviously, Mark decided to challenge them, uh, which turned out to be a bad decision. People that don't even know Mark are angry at the way it was dealt with. The jury looking into the death of Mark Duggan have been told they must decide whether it was absolutely necessary for armed police to fire the fatal shot. Simone Wilson is still in shock, still struggling to pick up the pieces, still trying to get answers. Mark Duggan was her partner, and was the man police shot dead in Tottenham last Thursday night? So, um, yeah, that, that, it would have, they would have been doing those. I've been on operations like that where you come forward, take over from the surveillance team, and you go on to do the option to arrest or hard stop, like people say. And, and 99% of the times you, you, uh, you contain them so, so robustly that they, they realise that there, there is no way out. Uh, and most of them, 99% of them, are safely concluded. Am I right in saying, Chris, that the that the primary tactic that, that that is commonly used and we commonly see is to overwhelm an individual in a vehicle so that they have no other decision to make than to surrender or, and to obviously 
follow the orders that they're given is is that a is that a common tactic which is i think they need to, yeah 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 that's uh that's certainly one aspect of it you need to contain them to make sure that they have got a, a way out or they can drive out you need to make them know in that instant that they are overwhelmed uh with firepower particularly uh and that they have to take it they have to have clear you give them very clear instructions that's one thing you're trained to do so there's no ambiguity. They give them very clear instructions what they have to do, uh, because some people will be confused that there's people in front of them with guns. Yeah, so you have to give them very clear instructions of what they have to do, and they may, they must be very aware that you 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 are armed. Um, so yeah, that that's that's one of the tactics. Yes, um, and in that occasion, that's what. And I it's do. and it's it's always when you when you observe these. Uh, interceptions being done they're always incredibly dynamic in terms of you generally always got three cars uh, which I think I'm right and correct me you've got a, a Bravo car an Alpha car everything just gets locked in covered and then it all happens very very quickly ideally you have three cars but quite often you don't um, if, if you haven't got the units and then you have to take the arrest or you have to attempt to take the arrest you, 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 you can't always wait for your third car so yeah um, yeah, you have to. It's policing, but with guns, basically. Um, and the tactics you use are well practiced. You practice them every month. You know, it's not something you just pick up. You have to practice it, practice it, practice it. And you're practiced and judged on it before you leave your training environment. And if you if you're not safe in those in the, in during those tactics on the A range, back in the A range, they used to have an old street. Now it's at Gravesend. But they, if you're unsafe during the practice in your assessment, you are not going through. You're not going to go any further. So, because once you take it out into the street, it's obviously much more. A lot more things can go wrong, and you have to. You have to have demonstrated that you can do that robustly, aggressively, but safely. Um, and you have to be able to assess everything that's happening in front of you, like people being stuck in their uh, seatbelts because they're so panicked they get stuck in the seatbelt. Sometimes you have to in, lean in and cut that seatbelt off. Sometimes you have to uh, extract them out the window. Sometimes you have to smash the windows. You have to make split-second decisions, generally made by PCs, by the way, when they go close up. you can A sergeant can give them the tactics, and uh, but the, the PCs will be making those big decisions. So it's quite a big jump from... PC on Borough to PC on SO19 where you're making life-changing decisions, life-threatening decisions um, very quickly. But the important, so, yeah, uh, the important thing to reflect on, though, is that these life-changing decisions that we say that are made within a second, within a moment, they're made on the basis of incredible training, which has taken months to get them to that point. A lot of training, a lot of assessment. You don't, you're not going to get to that point unless you've been rigorously... Um, assessed and trained um and your training does come like public order training i found uh, it is muscle memory it might be boring at the time but when the wheel comes off it's literally muscle memory and and uh, and you you do thank your training for uh, putting you in that, um, that 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 position so let's let's go back now to your time as a level two inspector at tottenham at that time when the shooting has occurred and you knew something was going to occur Talk us through the the hours and days post that incident and and what that looked like for you. Yeah, well, I mean, I came in and I was coming in from the the the, the riot happened on the Saturday. It, it, it um, the the vigil um, escalated and spilled out into Tottenham on the Saturday. 
I came in on Sunday morning to to be on a football unit going on to a football a football match, um, and then we were called back to Enfield, if I remember. And I think it was my brother, who uh, who's a captain, British Airways flight pilot. He he actually texted me and said, "Oh, by the way, they're forming up at Enfield. Did you know that?" I said, no, it didn't come off across the radio at the time. So I, I phoned um, IR and said, oh, by the way, there's information. Oh, yes, can you go there? So we did, via, via my brother. We went to uh, Enfield Town, where um, where they were forming up to, um, or oh, they are trashing the, 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 the actual high street there. And that was on Sunday. But the Mondays where the real, it really kicked off big time. And we were in um, Hackney and, and, and Peckham. We'd, we'd gone all over London, but Hackney, we, we were there for hours and hours, and that, that, that really did. The Monday night, I think it was the 8th, of the few couple of days after the riot, had um, serious public order had, had spread throughout the whole of London. And I think it was something like, I don't know, 20 of the brother, boroughs had gone up, uh, had reported serious disorder or riots at the time. Well, the partner of the man whose death triggered the weekend's riots has told Channel 4 News that the protests against his death have got out of control. So yeah, the Monday, I had a great team. My sergeants, and I'd said to them at the start, don't think about going home. Or if you do go home, you're only going home for a change of clothes in the next week. Um, so yeah, we, 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 we were at home very, very short period of time just to get our clothes and then we'd go, we were back on duty. But the Monday was the, 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 the peak of the riot as far as London was concerned and certainly as I was concerned. But again, I wanted to be there. What was that like? being in there in in the mix of it because you know they were they were you know we we reflect on the footage of 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 Croydon being on fire of cars being overturned of incredible serious levels of criminality and and I suppose I I don't want to detract away from the fact that there was there were there was a family that were grieving over the loss of their son brother friend relative but equally, you then had this level of criminality, which I don't think had been seen for a very, very long time. And it almost seemed to almost be, would I be right in saying, an excuse for just behaviour that was just out of control? Oh, among, yeah, there, 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 was a, there were a minority of people who were fighting for the cause. The cause being they felt that Mark Duggan had been unlawfully shot or that the police were brutal or that we were overhand. But... Um, uh, but an awful lot of them are there for the jolly. And I know that because I was on the ground that you see them laughing and looting and stuff like that and sending kids in to get wrong, different shoes and that. So that was nothing to do with Mark Duggan or, or a reflection on society or the police brutality or the government don't love them. It was about just thievery uh, and opportunism and uh, they were having a laugh. A lot of them were having a laugh, yeah. Just that they heard that there was a riot going on and they went to come and join it. Um, but it was a different level of a um, violence uh, on the Monday. Uh, it was almost light-hearted on, the, on where, when, where I was on a Sunday, but on the Monday it was it was a different intensity of violence uh, aimed at us particularly. Yeah. And was it an intensity that you'd never ever come across before or witnessed before? I've been at a few incidents where it was that intense. Well, the poll tax riots in 1990. Uh, obviously, no, I, I I didn't get to the intensity of the eighty-five, but I know I was around then, and I listened to that that intensity. We've been at several different incidents, but pro- over a prolonged period of time, the Tottenham riot 
uh, on the Monday particularly was the most intense I'd, I'd, I'd faced in 30 years or up to then 28 years I had at, at that time service. So yeah, it was the most intense I'd you know, over a long period of time, definitely. Did, did you feel as, a, as an inspector in charge of a, a carrier van of, you know, a, a group of men and women that are, that are trying to bring back a level of order along with thousands of other because the mobilisation was quite incredible in terms of how many officers were then deployed to London to bring things back to um, sort of normality, whatever that looked like. Did you, did you think that, that the level of disorder was set out to actually hurt or or almost get, I say revenge, I think that's probably the only word I can use at the moment whilst I'm thinking in terms of getting a police officer to find somebody and to hurt them to what's happened to our communities? I don't know about that. I, I don't. I didn't really think about that. I just thought... It, do you know what? If I'm honest, Ollie, it felt I'd been shield trained since I was uh, twenty, probably. Yeah, probably it, it just outside of probation. We were going down to um, Hounslow, and then obviously went into Gravesend. It felt like a scenario, a training scenario, because I'd done so much training. It just felt to me like a training scenario. I didn't get any political anything. I don't know if there there, there was a joint up. A strategy with all the the rioters to show the government that they're discontent or the police they're discontent. I don't think so. I think a lot of it was just opportunism, and I think a lot of it was uh, because they were they were burning down their own house for God's sake. Do you know what I mean? A lot of them, a lot of them were from weren't from Tottenham, but look, but they were burning down their own house. So how's that? Was that proof? I don't think it was a joint up. I think. Social media managed to join it up, but I don't think there was a, a, a political message generally. Obviously, people will tell me I'm wrong, but I, I think social media joined all these these rioters up. They knew where the opportunities were. They saw the lack of police lines and some of the news reports, and they thought, well, this is an opportunity to go and smash things up because a lot of them were middle class. I know they were. So, uh, yeah. I, I I don't see the political um, the, the joint up political thinking behind all those riots at all. No. And then after that period, you moved away. You're on succumbent to the Olympic Games for a period of time. But more importantly, what I wanted to reflect on is two years later in 2013, the findings came out in terms of the ruling or you know the the coroner's inquest in terms of the the, the matter in 2011 being. Uh, determined by a coroner and an investigation that the shooting was a lawful police shooting. And this evening there were warnings of further unrest as a jury found that Mark Duggan was lawfully killed even though they were sure he did not have a gun in his hand when he was shot. We are not giving up. No justice. No. At, at the time that that came out, there was, you know, somebody that I admire, um, Victor Elisa, was the the borough commander at Haringey, and was there to try and help and guide the community and the police through what was going to be potentially be a really another difficult moment for the Met in terms of making sure that you're able to manage the emotions of the community and working with the community to really try and encourage that that we didn't have a repeat of 2011. Were you part of that whole strategy? No, <laughs> I was a, I was still a safe neighbourhood inspector um, at the time on on borough. Um, Victor was brought in after the yeah after the riots to uh, do that very very difficult job. Um, I'm not sure I was deemed to be politically correct enough to get involved in those delicate little um, talks. Um, even though I knew Harringay very very well, probably better than any manager. Um, should I have been involved? Probably. 
but I wasn't, no. Uh, so I played my part, you know, I played my part in um, in doing what I was asked to do, um, and it, which was, I think, Save the Neighbourhood Inspectors. I was still involved in charities as well, well off to you. But, uh, no, other people of higher rank were deemed to be more suitable to deal with uh, that kind of repercussions. And, and also I was... I was part of the policing team that dealt with the riot, so maybe I wasn't the right person to deal with it. Do you know what I mean? So, in the past, there have been moments in time where policing has let down. I think it's been well documented. People from within its ranks, from from ethnic backgrounds, from uh, and, and equally, you know, you look at the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, and at times the police service has been labelled um the met and other organizations have been labeled as institutionally racist and i was wanting to get your view because everybody's journey in policing is very very different but i wanted to get your view in terms of what you felt at times throughout your career whether you felt those statements were accurate or not well I, I, my my views on that are well documented um on institutional racism yeah the words institutional racism must be separated from all the police officers in the police are racist. They're not separated. That's the problem. Everyone just assumes that everyone in the police are racist because the institution on paper shows that the effects or the outcomes may not be in favour of people from minorities. So they jump to the conclusion that all police officers are racist. They're not. Not in my experience. And also the most frustrating thing is that, yes, everyone's journey is different, but only one person's journey or a group of people's journey is, in, is deemed to be important. My journey is just as important. Just because it's a positive experience doesn't mean it's any more, any less important than the people who had negative experiences. But unfortunately, and I don't believe all those, by the way, I'm not going to go into detail, but I, I, unfortunately some of the, the people who, who said they had negative experiences, all of which made the rank, to, did 30 years and got to the rank of superintendent, of course, um, have now um, said uh, they're the only ones I listen to. And I've tried to tell people that it doesn't have to be a negative experience, and it certainly wasn't a negative experience in everyone's uh, um, career, and it certainly wasn't in mine. Yes, on paper, if you look at it, the institutions, Neil Basu uh, has said it recently, uh, are, are, the outcomes can be looked at as being racist. But I didn't experience a group of people in the police that were all racist. I think there were people who can do better. Certainly, they, they, in the eighties and nineties, I don't. I've, I had a couple of experiences in the eighties that I don't talk about anymore because they're not relevant now. The only relevance they have is that the, how far the police has come. There's no way you would sustain a racist sitting around um, the neck abusing people in an overt manner. What, what they do in their mind is something else, but. It's not a it's not a breeding ground for racism anymore. And I work with the police now on, on a you know on a part time basis on, on different projects, but it's just not an environment which would which would which would make a, a racist overt racist comfortable. Are there outcomes that should be better for different people? Yeah, of course you can look into it. You always want to improve your systems, but it's not an overt strategy to be racist. The police isn't racist, I would say. But I'm not listened to because I haven't got a negative story. But the one comment that's often made, and it's and it's and it's certainly a conversation piece that we've had, a, we've we've heard a lot, and we're having a lot, is the use of stop and search, and stop and search disproportionately targets people from ethnic communities. Do you what, what's your view on that? Do you think stop and search is used to 
frugally? Is it is it is it something which is which should be more thought about by officers and 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 considered more before they do it? Oh, well, you should always consider your, your before you use stop and search, but I think it should be used more. Uh, I think uh, obviously dis- ethnic minorities disproportionately live in poorer backgrounds, and crime is committed, or certainly robberies and burglaries and street crime is is committed more in poorer backgrounds, in poorer areas, which are frequented disproportionately by ethnic minorities, and unfortunately they're going to be the they're going to be the victims of, of crime more and that's sad and that's a society problem not not a police problem they have to police what's in front of them they can't they can't solve all the ills of society you know unfortunately i work tottenham hackney if you take robbery for instance robbers are are majority committed by black kids sadly um also black kids are more likely to be stabbed to death by black children you know, so it, there are lots of disproportion, but it's a society problem, not a police's problem. Police have to deal with what's in front of them. Um, unfortunately, I, I can't see, you know, you don't go out. If, if someone says they've been robbed uh, by a 15 to 20 year old black kid in the school uniform, or whatever, and you go and you go to search for that person, you're going to stop black kids, sadly. You know, and, and that, that, that is a sad comment. There's not a lot you can, police can do about it on themselves. They have to deal with what's in front of them. Um, you can have another argument why police, why um, ethnic minorities are disproportionately victims of crime uh, because they live in poorer areas or poor social background or poorer education. That's a society issue. It's not the police's issue. What do you think is the greatest challenge for the police over the next five years? Obviously, there's been some very uh, distressing and concerning stories coming out of the Met in particular over the last um, six to 12 months. Uh, And Sir Mark Rowley is now on this mission to get back public trust and confidence in frontline policing and across policing as a whole. What would you say are the greatest challenges facing operational policing in the next five to ten years? I think getting policemen to actually police, more police officers to actually police, get back to their core value, core purpose of actually policing instead of talking about policing. Uh, I think there's too many people having conversations and not enough people policing. I think that you have the Mark Rally has to be strong and say we can't deal with that, we can't deal with that, we can't deal with that. This is what we're going to do with volume crime. Yeah, you don't need to. Yes, neighbourhood policing is really, really effective if if its core purpose, I think, is to yeah build bridges, but to reduce crime, you know, because that's what the police are there for. Uh, I think we need to get back to actually knowing what the police are for, what they're paid to do. They're getting distracted an awful lot at the moment, and I don't think the daily public self-flagellation by the commissioner is helpful. Yes, the people have let them down, and you deal with them, and get them out. And strong supervision and management is in increasing that kind of capability or the, the, the skills in that those ranks is very important. Deal with you can see wrongs on your team. Deal with them. You know, don't don't push kick them kick them down to someone else. You know, but yeah, get back to policing. Get back to what you're paid to do instead of um, talking about policing. There's a lot of people having conversations at the moment. 
I don't see that, that, that many people actually policing them. What's your life look like now outside of policing? It must have been, I'm going to suggest it was probably a sad day when you had to hand back your warrant card and you walked away from a career that you seem to have got so much fulfilment out of. If you, if you get to the end of your career and you don't feel relief because you've, got all, you've, you've managed to get out alive, then you haven't done your job as far as I'm concerned. No, I wasn't sad. I was relieved that I'd managed to survive 30 years on the front line alive. Um, I'm very, uh, I'm very fond of the people I met and are still friends with, and and I help uh, help when I'm asked uh, in different various guises now. But I done my time. I did 30 years, and I did it, and I left it all on the pitch. Yeah, I I do find that people who regret and blah 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 is generally because they hadn't put it all in. Yes, you regret the camaraderie, and and being being you know driving around fast cars and blah blah blah, but. I'd done it. I'd, I'd, I'd done it. You know, I don't regret. I wouldn't go back unless the, uh, I was made a fantastic offer. But I would. Um, I'd done it. No, I wasn't particularly sad. I was just relieved in a lot of ways. You know, because I really, really um, gave hundred and ten percent. Sometimes to the detriment of my own private life. And what does a post-policing world look like for Chris Donaldson now? What projects have you got going? What What keeps you busy? It's varied. I've I've been I've I've been an event manager at Wembley. I've been a a script advisor for Danny Boyle and Jess Armstrong. I've been um, I've looked after A-listers in their homes and uh, at their weddings. I've um, I've done some high-end security work. I've I've I do I, I'm lucky. I get a lot of offers now. I'm I've been helping in. With politics change and you know, on, on government advisory bodies uh, recently, the people have asked me to come and give my opinion about policing and, and my experience uh, at government level. I've I've got a very varied um, professional life now, um, which is what I've always wanted. But, but when you've got a, when you've got a good pension that you've put in for and spent a lot of money on, um, gives you a nice cushion. It gives you a nice. Uh, uh, and it gives you a, a freedom to do things that actually interest you. So I'm lucky. I can't complain. And I've got my health, which is amazing. Well, you know, the last hour and 20 minutes has been a fantastically honest account of your life in policing, which is, you know, uh, incredibly refreshing in terms of hearing your experiences, the challenges, you know, the pressures at the different ranks of PC sergeant, inspector, and some of the most... Um, relied upon units across London in TSG and in armed support because when things go very very bad you want highly trained skilled men and women to be there to support us to get us through the most difficult and challenging times so on behalf of my colleagues and I at the podcast we thank you ever so much for your 30 years of service it's incredibly uh, fantastic achievement we thank you for everything you're doing outside of policing and and thank you for coming on the podcast and and giving us your insights. It's been uh, an incredible hour and 20. Ollie, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, the charities that you're supporting are very worthy. And I can do, uh, if I've done a little bit towards helping you, then it's been an absolute honour. Thank you very much, Ollie. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production. Hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynne Stanley. Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence.